Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Nick. This is Colin, Lydia, Bradley, Adam, and Jesse. Together, we're the Reagan family. Yes. Today is the third Sunday of Advent. As we prepare for Christmas and long for Jesus' return, we light this candle as a symbol of our joy in the good news of great joy for all people. May it remind us to rejoice and be glad in all circumstances. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 95, 6-7. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord our Maker. He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep in His hands. If only you would listen to His voice right now. The Word of the Lord. Uh, the New Testament reading is found in Revelations 1, 12-18. I turned to see who was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven oil lamps burning on top of seven golden stands. In the middle of one of the lampstands, I saw somebody who looked like the human one. He wore a robe that stretched down to his feet, and he had a gold sash around his chest. His head and hair were white as wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine brass that had been purified in a furnace, and his voice sounded like a rushing water. He held seven stars in his right hand, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His appearance was like the sun shining with it all, uh, with all of its power. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, but he put his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, now I'm alive forever and always. I have the keys to death and and the grave. The word of the Lord. Amen. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 2, 10 to 11. And this is off off script a little bit, but I just have to say amen to that last word spoken, the keys of death and life. Amen. Matthew 2, 10 through 11. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. Falling to their knees, they honored him. And then they opened their treasure chests and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The gospel of our Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the word of God made flesh. So even as we hear the scriptures being read and taught, would you open up our hearts and our minds to receive you, to welcome you. Come Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, New Life Downtown. Good to see all of you on this, the third Sunday of Advent. Have any of you started watching holiday movies already? Yes. I won't ask you to raise your hand if they're Hallmark holiday movies and, or Netflix specials like A Castle for Christmas or whatever it might be. <laughs> Someone's like, yes, that's the one. You know, I was thinking this week that some of my favorite Christmas or holiday movies really are about power. Actually, more specifically, they're about how power is used. 
And to be even more precise, it's about someone using their power for the sake of another. I mean, think about that great classic, Elf. Like, it is true that this is about Buddy, and he's sort of like this innocent, naive, you know, that it heart, it's heartwarming, and, and the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. But really, the movie turns when his dad, Walter, I think is his name, is sitting at that board meeting on Christmas Eve, and he's like, you know what? And his son comes in, he's like, you're selfish, all you think about is yourself. And he's like, oh my gosh, I've had risks. And the boss says, if you leave, you're, you're fired. And he's like, I don't care, I'm going to go help my son, we're going to find Buddy. That's the moment where someone decides to use his power for someone else's sake. Of course, maybe the classic example of it is the Charles Dickens story, A Christmas Carol. Any version of it, except for maybe the Jim Carrey version of it. The Muppets version of it is great. But the Christmas Carol, of course, presents us with a man who's used to, who spent his whole life using power for himself and not granting to others the resources that he could and living in a miserly sort of way and then being confronted with the effects of that and being invited to change the way he uses power. And of course, I'm, I'm skewing all of this because of our series. We're in this series this Advent comparing Herod and Jesus. Our Advent series here at New Life Downtown is about Herod and Jesus. It's really about two kings and about two kingdoms. And last week we talked about two different ways of gaining power. Herod's ascent to the throne by killing and scheming and alliances and Jesus's descent from a throne. Two very different ways of power that make us think differently about ambition, godly ambition versus selfish ambition but also that makes us think very differently about God. Last week we talked about how these birth, these kingship narratives, the birth narrative of Jesus is set against the backdrop of Herod's reign so that we can see this is a different kind of king, which means a different kind of God. And last week we said, instead of starting with the question of, do you believe in God? It's, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with a God that looks like this, that looks like this Jesus, moving us away from the baggage that we might have from God talk. Well, this morning, we talked, we've talked about gaining power last week. This morning, we're going to look at what it means to use power differently. And I'm calling our reflection today the rise and fall of you and me. Now, I know you're kind of like with anxious breath. Some of you, if you're into the church world kind of stuff, you're like, oh, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. You talk about this podcast that maybe many of you have listened to, and I'm almost done with the final installment of it. They get quite long towards the end, but as, I listen, as I've listened to it, it's, it's sobering, it's disturbing, it's made me look in the mirror, it makes us grapple with what is it about power that brings out these things in us? But the truth is, long before there was this podcast, <laughs> there have been all kinds of docudramas about powerful people, influential people. If you're a Gen Xer or an old, you know, geriatric millennial, as they call it, an older millennial, maybe, <laughs> maybe you remember the VH1 behind the music stuff. And you're like, yes, I love hearing about all these popular bands. And then whatever did happen to Hanson anyway? Mbop. It is a good question. 
But anytime we watch one of these things or listen to these podcasts, the question is not so much, wow, look at that rise and then that crash or the rise and the fall. Anytime we encounter those kinds of stories, really we're meant to turn our floodlight that wants to expose everyone else, we're meant to turn our floodlight into the searchlight of the Holy Spirit. We're meant to sort of move from saying, yeah, look at them, to saying, oh God, woe is me. In fact, it's interesting that before Isaiah starts his whole ministry of saying woe to this nation, woe to this nation, woe to... Before Isaiah says a woe about someone else, he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And so as we grapple with power, our hope this morning is not simply to kind of turn on the floodlight and say, look at all these terrible ways that power is being misused, but to say, what about the rise and fall of me and you? And how we use power. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 2. If not, you can follow along on the screen. It says this. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea, during the rule of King Herod, we're, we're being reminded of the political drama, the backdrop of this event. Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and they asked, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We've seen a star in the east and we've come to honor him. Can you imagine Herod hearing this, saying, do you know what I've worked, how hard I've worked to be called the king of the Jews? No little baby's going to take me down. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was troubled, you bet. And everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. Now the sense here that I have of this, this phrase, everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him, is not that all the ordinary people were worried, but all the people who had everything to gain from Herod's reign were troubled. Because anytime there's power, there's always the people, the hangers-on, the court around power that says, well, hang on, my life is better if they're in charge, so let's not ruffle anybody's feathers. Let's not disrupt this because it'd be bad news for us too. And so Herod gathered all the chief priests and the legal experts and asked them where the Christ was to be born. I told you last week that the story that we get about Herod from other documents of the ancient world is that Herod sort of found different ways of getting the throne that he had and through strategic marriage and brutal betrayals and murders, Herod came to be called king of the Jews. And in fact, later in his reign, Herod wrote six different wills, changing the succession plan each time because he had 10 wives and each of them had sons and he kept trying to Put them further away. What we see from Herod, we're going to make three observations, three contrasts today between Herod and Jesus. And the first is this, Herod eliminates threats and liabilities. Eliminates threats and liabilities. He's constantly seeing what should have been good news, his own sons, the birth of his own children. Instead of framing that as good news, he frames it as a threat. Oh, we better, we better rewrite the succession plan. We better change the way things are going to go. Herod will always reframe what should be good news as bad news. Herod will always reframe what should be a joyful, a person to be welcomed. He'll always reframe it as a person to be excluded. But right here in Matthew's gospel, we see that while Herod eliminates threats and liabilities, Jesus elevates the marginalized and the lowly. While Herod eliminates threats and liabilities, Jesus elevates the marginalized and the lowly. Matthew begins his gospel by telling us this is the story of Jesus the Christ, the son of David. And then he goes through this genealogy. 
And you've heard this last year at Advent, Jason and I talked about this. In Matthew's genealogy of Jesus are four women. And often these women are mentioned in in sermons and sometimes by commentators as questionable women. Women with a shady past. Scandalous women. But they're not in this genealogy of Jesus because that's what God thinks about them. They're in this genealogy as God's way of saying these are courageous women. These are women of faith. These are women of valor. These are women who found themselves pushed out by powerful men and used what little agency they had to make sure they wouldn't be left out of the promise. And so when we hear about Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, we're not remembering shady people that God was kind of like, okay, come on in. But women that God said, the world calls you scandalous, I recognize you as courageous. You get reframed. Herod keeps seeing good people and reframing them as threats. Oh, this, this guy, he's not good. Jesus keeps seeing people that the world has cast in a particular light and says, no, 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 that's not it. You're a daughter of God. You're a child of God. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of Abraham. You belong in this story. While Herod eliminates threats, Jesus elevates the marginalized and the lowly. And then later on in the story, just a few verses later, we see Joseph, when Mary is with child, Joseph says he, wants, he wanted to put her away quietly. But an angel stops him and says, don't put her away quietly. This, I think, is what the world is always trying to tell us. There are people that are embarrassing to us. There are people that we're, we, we don't think they belong in church and we don't think they belong in the story because, well, you know their past and this story and this issue and this thing and that. And, and Jesus, we, we keep wanting to put them away quietly. And Jesus keeps saying, no, 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 no. They belong in the story. I think of Bartimaeus, the beggar, who's yelling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the followers of Jesus are like, can we just be quiet? They want him to be sidelined. They want him to be a quiet character in the story. And Jesus says, no, no, no. He's going to be front and center in the story. Come here, Bartimaeus. What is it you want me to do? And then he heals him. This is the gospel movement that we begin to see. We see that the two different kings have two different ways of using their power. One is sidelining people, reframing good people as bad people, and the other is reframing, changing the story, bringing the sidelined to the center. C.S. Lewis says it this way in his book, Miracles. He's talking about the incarnation. He says, in the Christian story, God descends... To reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But, and here's where Lewis gives us an image, but he goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with him. One has the picture, Lewis says, of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great and complicated burden. You know, if you ever had a friend that asked you to help them move or load up a truck, and, you know, if you didn't have a good excuse that Saturday, <laughs> and you ended up, okay, I guess we're going to help them. If there's light loads you just carry like this, and there's other loads where you're like, okay, okay, all right, how are we moving this couch here? And you stoop low. And Lewis is saying, this is what we're meant to see, that the incarnation is for the purpose of salvation. 
that God comes low in order to lift up with him. And he says, this is this image of the strong man. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. What an image. God becoming low to lift us up. It makes us think about how we as followers of Jesus use the power or the influence that we have. And maybe for some of you listening to this, you're like, well, I mean, I'm not the boss of anybody, really. I mean, I wish I were, but I'm not. You know, I'm just a student or an employee or I, you know, I'm kind of in my retirement years. Like, I, you know, I don't have power. I don't have much power. Actually, all of us have influence. And it's easy, it's a mistake to kind of say, no, 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 that's not me, that's somebody else. Rather than to take an inventory of all the people's lives that we actually do have influence over. Because once we name that, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a friend. Maybe, you're like, well, I do, there is kind of something. Maybe it's just by virtue of living in America in 2021. And our relative wealth and resources to the rest of the world. All of a sudden we reframe and we're like, no, that, you know. And then we can ask ourselves, once you take an inventory of your influence, you can start to ask yourself, well, how do I use it? Do I use it only for my own sake or does it also result in the good of someone else? Maybe a question you could write down in a journal to reflect on someday is, are other people better off for my proximity to their life or are they worse off? That's a difficult question, isn't it? What we see in the Gospels is when God comes near, there's good news. There's tremors of trouble around Herod, Herod, but there's rumblings of good news around Jesus. Are people better off or worse off for our proximity toward them? What's our effect on people? How do people experience me? Ooh, that's an uncomfortable question. Like seriously, if you really want, if you're brave, you could ask your spouse or your roommate this. How do you experience my presence? (laughs) They might be like, yeah, let's not talk about that. Let's change the subject. How do I leave people? My dad, um, when we lived in Malaysia, he worked for an ad agency and was very successful, had a lot of clients, a lot of perks that came with the job and memberships to, you know, the, the, the tennis and swimming club or whatever and, and but we lived in a modest kind of house, and um, there was a guy that would come by our neighborhood very often, and he was deaf and mute. And I remember as a kid, when he would come to the door, I would just be terrified. I'm like, what are, I don't know, what do I do with the guy that's deaf and mute? Like, I don't know what to do. And I would ask my dad, I'm like, Dad, there's this guy at the door, like, what are we supposed to do? And, and instead of saying, let's just wait it out, you know, it'll be fine, wait for him to go away. He came to the door and sat down with him on our porch. And the guy would write these notes, kind of scribble out some words. My dad would write him back. And he would spend like hours with this guy. And over time, the guy kept coming back. And often when he'd come back, my mom would go and make some food and bring it out to him. And my dad would sit with him. And I'm not, the end of the story is not, and then he became a Christian. The end of the story is that my dad gave him the gift of presence by sitting with him and listening to him, writing, reading what he wrote, and writing notes back to him. 
telling him about the love of God. This is what it looks like to think about the way of Jesus, for our presence to result in elevating others. Matthew, as he goes on in verse 7, it says, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and found out from them the time when the star had first appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and saying, Go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me so that I too may go and honor him. Liar. You sit on a throne of lies, Herod. You smell like beef and cheese. The second contrast here is that Herod protects his power. Herod protects his power. And then you skip down verse 12. Because they were warned, the Magi were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. And when the Magi had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I send for you. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod will soon search for the child in order to kill him. Herod protects his power. Jesus, we see in the story, protects the vulnerable. We think carefully about these two stories. Here's Herod. I've got to protect my power. And Jesus is saying the story of Jesus' arrival is all about God saying, in this one, I've come to protect the vulnerable. So the Magi are warned. Joseph and Mary are warned. This legacy of caring for and protecting the vulnerable has shaped church history. But you wouldn't know it by what you hear in conversations with people around you. When you talk with someone who doesn't believe or a skeptic or maybe a friend who's just the very little that people know about church history, often what we're told is, well, but you know, the Crusades and the Inquisition and... Well, I mean, didn't Christians justify slavery in the American South? They did. Yes, yes, and tragically, yes. But what's remarkable about those moments in church history is that they are blemishes precisely because that was never the Jesus way. They're remarkable precisely because they sit as blemishes on the larger canvas of the church's story. And while it's good to rightly confess it and repent of those moments in Christian history, it would be a mistake to say, and that's the whole story. Because it is absolutely not. This year I read a book called Bullies and Saints by an Australian historian named John Dixon. And Dixon helps us look deeper into the Crusades and the Inquisitions and dispelling some of our misconceptions about even the darkest chapters. But he's not simply trying to give us more context and backdrop about the darkest chapters. He's also trying to help us understand that while those stories get told and retold and told and retold, what doesn't get told is the faithful lives of saints in that same time period. And what doesn't get told for every, you know, kind of, counter-argument that's thrown in our face. Well, you know, preachers in the American South before the Civil War said this about slavery. They did, and they were wrong. But before they ever approached a pulpit to try to justify it, in the 300s, there was a bishop named Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian fathers, who was the sole voice in the ancient world who spoke 
unequivocally against the evil of slavery. Aristotle didn't do it. Plato didn't do it. Socrates didn't do it. No Roman thinker did it. No one in the ancient world did it. But there was a pastor named Gregory of Nyssa who called it evil in the fourth century. We didn't know about that. We didn't know that Augustine in North Africa joined a long-standing practice of churches, smaller congregations all around the empire and beyond that would use church funds to buy people out of slavery. We're not told about that. It's good to repent, but it's also good to remember who we actually are. The church, at our best, are the people who protect the vulnerable. The church at our best are not the ones who protect our own power or misuse our own power to defend our palaces or prestige or positions in culture. The church at our best are the ones who speak up for and protect the vulnerable. But when we hear this, not only is church history a reason to repent or give us occasions to remember, but church history can also be a rebuke to us. Because we're told today that Depending on your political persuasions, that protecting the vulnerable only looks like this. And if you're on one side of the political aisle, you say protecting the vulnerable looks like immigrants and refugees. If you're on the other side of the political aisle, you'll say, well, protecting the vulnerable means speaking up for the unborn. We've got to be pro-life. And all of that is true, except that the kingdom refuses to be imprisoned by a political party. The kingdom of God calls us to be people that protect the vulnerable from the womb all the way to the tomb. That's the church at its best. That's the church at its best. To be able to say, well, hang on, if this is who Jesus is, then this must be who we are. And that's the church we're striving to be. This Advent, New Life, with all our eight congregations, began to try to find out who are the families in need in our community, even in our own congregation and beyond, and invited people to come alongside them and adopt a family. And adopt sounds like a long-term thing. It's really a way of, it's, what we mean by that language is coming alongside a family during the holiday season and sometimes buying gifts, sometimes providing for them for a meal, sometimes a bit more than that, depending on what the needs might be. Last week we got the note that over 130 families have been adopted by new lifers. Come alongside them. You'll hear at the end of the service today, Pastor Ken will talk about ways that there's actually more opportunities, more people willing to help than there are people asking for help. And now that people have found out about that, people are saying, well, actually, I do need some help. And that's great. That's the way it should be. The legacy of the kingship of Jesus is not protecting our own power, but protecting the vulnerable. As the story goes on in verse 16, it says, Then Herod knew that the Magi had fooled him, and he grew very angry, and he sent soldiers to kill all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding territory who were two years old and younger, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. This fulfilled the word spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and much grieving, Rachel weeping for her children, and she did not want to be comforted because they were no more. You know, sometimes we imagine that the the nativity story took place in like a snow globe. You know, a little town of Bethlehem. This is so cute. I just love it. We have our little nativity scene on our table. But like, it would be pretty disturbing if we had like the murderous Herod. (laughs) 
It's part of the story. The fallout of his edict. Mothers weeping who will not be comforted. Weeping in Ramah. I think about what Martha said earlier in the service today. That it's Joy Sunday, but for some of you, it's like, well, Joy is difficult. Listen, part of the good news is it's a God who's not coming to a snow globe world. <laughs> it's a God that stepped into the weeping and the pain. And what we're meant to see is that the way of Herod always results in death. The way of the world of protecting power, of eliminating threats. There's only one way that story ends. And it's not with life. You see, Herod's reign results in weeping. Herod's reign results in weeping. But the flip side of this is that Jesus' reign results in worship. Jesus' reign results in worship. The the other gospel that gives us stories around Jesus' birth is Luke. And Luke tells us the story in such a way that we recognize there are four songs that show up in Luke's gospel. The song of Zechariah, the song of Mary, the song of the angels, the song of Simeon. And when you think about those songs, those songs became the worship songs of early Christians. I mean, I can imagine like these guys sitting around, guys and gals sitting around in, in, in their Christian you know, gatherings in their home. And they're like, okay, we should sing something. Okay, what should we sing? Someone's like, remember Mary's song? And they're like, yeah, let's do that one. Jigga, 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 the mighty will fall. And you know. It's kind of a rager. Um, read the words. It's not a peppy tune. <laughs> Maybe someone else is like, let's sing something lighter. How about the angels song, Gloria? Okay, let's sing that one. These four songs became the first songs of the early church. And to this day, if you've come from a liturgical background or you've been in a traditional service, Anglican, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, whatever, if you've been in those services, you recognize that to this day, In Christian worship, those four songs are sung or said or read. Log on to morning prayer or evening prayer somewhere, even song. You'll hear those songs being sung. Why? Because Jesus' reign always results in worship. Herod's always results in weeping. But Jesus' always results in worship. In the end, this is a word for us not just about how we use power, but how we respond to it. I could end here and we could say, okay, so everybody do better. Let's all use power better. We'll say, okay, let's try. But the key is not in knowledge about how we're supposed to use power. The key is about a surrender of our heart as our heart is confronted by power. As our hearts encounter power. What do we do? In the end, everybody rises or falls based on our response to Jesus. In the end, that's what the story is about. You will rise or you will fall based on your response to Jesus. In Luke 2, Simeon blessed this child. And he, said, he blessed them and he said to Mary, his mother, this boy is a sign to be the cause of the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that generates opposition so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. Oh, and mama, a sword will pierce your innermost being too. Simeon's not mincing words. He's saying, this one, on him will hinge all of human history. On him will hinge, will determine who falls and who rises. And what we discover when we go back to Matthew's story is that the wise men fall and they are saved. 
The wise men fall and they are saved. Matthew 2, verse 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, falling to their knees. They honored him. And then they opened their treasure chests and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then they're warned. They're saved. Joseph takes that place of surrender twice. Joseph is told, get up. That Greek word for get up is that same word for rise. It's a, a form of that word is used later to talk about resurrection. Those who fall in surrender will be raised in glory. We see this in Matthew's gospel. But on the other hand, Herod rises against Jesus and perishes. Matthew 2 verse 19. After King Herod died, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream to, jo- in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And he said, get up. The angel said, and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Those who were trying to kill the child are dead. I love that. That's about it for the story of Herod. Those who wanted to kill him are dead. History might try to remember that Herod was the great one, but here we are 2,000 years later. We're not Herodians. We're Christians. We're not writing songs and singing songs and reaching people with the good news of an old Jewish king 2,000 years ago. Instead, we're proclaiming that the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, is Jesus Christ. Everyone else is dead. And we saw that passage, we heard that passage this morning in Revelation 1 where John has an encounter with Jesus. And this time he sees it, he sees it, oh my goodness, this is Jesus with eyes of fire and hair like wool and a sword coming out of his mouth. And we're tempted to kind of say, well, you know, there was little baby Jesus in the Gospels and then there's angry Jesus, Braveheart Jesus in Revelation. That's just, that's just messed up, first of all. And secondly, you're missing the point. Because what does the glorious, radiant Jesus say to John? John falls as though dead before him. And Jesus doesn't say, stay down, you sinner. I am Batman. (laughs) He says, puts his right hand on him. The hand of power, the hand of strength. He puts his right hand on him and he says, do not Be afraid. I was dead. (laughs) I am now alive. Rise up. That's the Jesus we see. The question for us is, do we have eyes to see this Jesus now? Do we have eyes to see that the one who came low is the one who rose from the dead? And if we fall before him, see, if we Rise against Jesus, you will fall. But if you fall before Jesus, you will rise. If you rise against Jesus and say, no, 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 my life, my way, my morality, my choices, my money, my sexual ethics, my work, my future. If you rise against Jesus, in the end, you will fall. But if you fall before Jesus and say, your breath... (laughs) Your life, your gift, your everything. If we fall before him, then we will rise. I was thinking this morning of that old vineyard song that Brian Dirksen wrote. Come, now is the time to worship. Worship team, you can come. And the, the bridge of that song says, 
One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. He's quoting Philippians 2. But then the song says, but still the greatest treasure remains for those, do you know it? Who gladly choose you now. The greatest treasure is not the frankincense and gold and myrrh. The greatest treasure was recognizing Jesus, that's the king of kings. That's not just the king of the Jews, that's the king of the world. This is the one before whom all will bow. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And so the invitation for us this morning is not simply to say, okay, I will try to use power better. The invitation for us is to say, will you fall before Jesus? Because when you fall before him, then by his power he raises us up, raises us up and says, now come on, let's go serve the world. Come on, let's go find the lowly, the people that others categorize as outside and let's welcome them in. Would you bow your heads this morning?